It's something for nothing. The Rush Fancast. Steve and Jerry with you. Jer, how are you? I'm all right, Steve. How are you? Great. Permanent Waves was so amazing. The last two episodes we did Permanent Waves, right? I believe so. It was uh, it was great. It was great. So why not talk about Permanent Waves one more time today? Uh, yeah, I'm all for it. You can find us on Twitter at Rush Fancast, Instagram the Rushcast, email Jerry the Rushcast at gmail.com. And the bass intro today. Let me guess. Was it Lex? It was Lex. He does wow. it. He does it every week. Yeah. He's amazing. I'm on a streak guessing. So another thing that's amazing is the guest we have today, Jar. I'm really excited about this. We met this guy at the uh, book release party for Wandering the Face of the Earth. Yep. I would say that he is probably, is he the biggest Rush fan that you've ever met? That I've ever met, yeah. Is he the biggest Rush fan ever? Oof. You know, there there probably be some people who would, you know, contend the crown, but I'm going to say he, he is until someone else steps forward. Yeah, really? Well, if you've seen the movie Time Stand Still, I know you've seen it. I think we saw it together in the theaters the day it came out. Yeah. And Ray was in the movie and you saw his house. You saw his collection. He's a Rush fan, Rush expert, and Rush collector, Ray Warzniak. Welcome to the Rush Fancast. Steve, good day to you. Thank you so much for having me. And to you too, Jerry, as well. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming on. I really, really, really appreciate it. So, Ray, why don't we start by you telling us your Rush discovery story? Where did you first hear of Rush, and how did you become a fan? Don't you love hearing that story from everybody and anybody? Isn't that the perfect way to open up any relationship with any kind of a music fan is is the simplicity of that question? Hey, who introduced you to? Yeah. I thought it was interesting. Yesterday, I did uh, a new episode of The Big Interview with Dan Rather, and I I was waiting for him to ask me that question, but he didn't. We're better than Dan Rather. Yeah, already you've one up Tim. Uh, okay, my relationship with Rush, and, and it is to me, it is just that. It's it's a relationship that I feel like I have with them at this point in my life. They graduated from being, you know, my favorite band years ago, and I decided to take my fanaticism to the level that I have. But music was a big part of my life forever, and. My first favorite band, and and still they're in my top four, was Supertramp. And that band really started to move me, and I was being moved by music. I went to my first show in October of 1980 when I saw ELO here in town in Buffalo in October of 80. And at that point, with Supertramp on my radar, and I was buying their music, and all of a sudden music started to mean something to me. Well, my older cousin, Joe... He had a great relationship with music as well. And I would go to his house and he was cramming Genesis down my throat for a lot of years. And then he started to cram Rush down my throat. But it really didn't have much of an effect on me. His pitch of the greatness of Rush had some kind of an effect and influence on my brother. So my brother acted upon my cousin's sales job. My brother went out and bought both moving pictures and exit stage left. My brother would play it in his bedroom, occasionally call me in, you know, hey, Ray, Come in here for a minute. You got to listen to this. Hey, come and listen to this. Come and listen to this. And it really didn't do much to me. Didn't do much. I wasn't affected much yet. But at that point, I just started to become aware of this band called Rush. And after a while, the more my brother started to play it for me, the more I started to be moved moved by them. So not too long thereafter, MTV did a world premiere broadcast of the Exit Stage Left concert video. And there was just something about what was coming off the screen that night when I watched that exit stage left concert premiere that I was clearly moved 
And as I am want to say now, all of a sudden that band had my attention. So it was time for me to act upon the feelings that I was having for this. So started to take my brother's albums and what do you do back then circa 1981 let me take your vinyl album let me make myself a cassette copy and it was just full immersion at that point and it was such a great period that here i was in 1981 i was 15 years old in 1981 and i was discovering this entire back catalog what is this album fly by night what is this song by tour and the snow dog and i'm doing what i think every 15 year old kid should be doing at that point you're in your room door closed just full immersion into the entire back catalog signals then was the first album that i was anticipating its release september of 1982 i remember as a 16 year old kid laying in my bed in the morning in 97 rock our local buffalo new york rock radio station playing subdivisions hey here's a brand new song from the new rush album called signals this is a song called subdivisions i remember laying in bed in the morning hearing it just getting chills from the inevitability of this new wave of music that rush was about to bless me with not exaggerating to say you know i wore it out and i'm on my fifth cassette copy let alone the vinyl copies let alone the cd copies etc 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 and from from late 1981, when I saw that Exit Age Love concert video on MTV until 15 minutes ago when this conversation began, <laughs> Rush has been the single biggest constant in my life. I'm thankful for that. And because of my, uh, because of the amount of years and time, let alone money, that I've spent towards this band, I have an incredible appreciation for other people and their respective passions. My my passion happens to be for Rush, but I, I recognize and appreciate other people who have a similar passion. And what is it about Rush, do you think? I mean, because we talk to a lot of people, we get a lot of emails, and everybody basically says it's a variation on a theme. They get into Rush, and then they're like missionaries for Rush. Yeah. Why is that? Isn't that something? Yeah. First of all, I'll respectfully agree with the both of you. In fact, I had a conversation just yesterday with somebody that we were comparing the ardent Rush fans to ardent fans of another band that I'm sure there is somebody out there in the world who is the biggest Queen fan or the biggest David Bowie fan or the biggest ACDC fan. But there is something about Rush fans that have this level of passion that supersedes that of the fans of other bands. Why is it? Can I just cop to the dude answer and just say, dude, because they're awesome. <laughs> yeah. There are certain characteristics that I ended up arriving at, or I should, should I say, I ended up delineating some of these characteristics in the liner notes that I wrote for this new Permanent Waves anniversary release. That, of course, that, you know, that, the simplicity of your question, you know, what is it about Rush? That, that's a conversation, of course, there is no correct answer to it. But there are certain characteristics that I realized that there is something about their integrity, their professional integrity, their dedication to each other just as friends that I think allows the common folk to be able to relate to. That anybody who has any kind of integrity about your work or your family or your passion or any kind of loyalty towards your spouse, your children, your friends can recognize that in somebody else, whether it's these three gigantic rock stars or whomever, there's something about them that you're able to relate to, that they aren't an untouchable rock star. You know, they're, they're not 
Paul McCartney, there is some sort of symbiosis, I think, that Rush fans can almost feel for these three guys. So, Ray, you are here to help us talk about the Permanent Waves 40th anniversary because you did write the liner notes. Mm -hmm. And Permanent Waves was definitely a change in direction for the band. They went out of their way not to do a concept album this time. Is that correct? Indeed. Yeah, I I think that was on page one of my liner notes was just kind of establishing their headspace circa the summer of 1979. And amidst all of my resources here at home, all of the magazines, all the newspapers, all the nonsense that I'm surrounded with here, I was able to pick out a couple of key quotes that I thought personified that headspace. And Getty did say exactly what you just alluded to there. Hey, we, we needed to graduate from where we were. We've kind of taken that sidelong thematic idea. We've kind of taken it to its limit. And it was time for a change of pace. And do you think it had something to do, too, with the, the musical climate in the late 70s anyway? You know, like you said in the, in the liner notes, you've got The Clash, you've got you know, Joe Jackson's in there, The Cars, shorter songs, no crazy guitar solos, no epics. Did that have an influence on what they chose to be their new direction? Absolutely. I think that was openly admitted by them, by the members of the band, that as they were listening to the radio circa 79, specifically CFNY 102.1, a station that was playing Elvis Costello and the police and other pseudo new wave bands, they wanted to be a part of that. They wanted to be a part of this movement and they wanted to continue to progress you know, their label from certain people as a progressive rock band, I think it's appropriate, but not in the way that it is pigeonholed as just, we're going to continue to make these 18-minute epic songs. We are going to progress. And if they wanted to progress, the graduation from hemispheres to permanent waves does represent true progression, that they weren't doing the same thing for the third or fourth album in a row or fourth out of five albums. It was time for a progression in Permanent Waves represented that progression, and it also represented some of the climate that was around them musically that they were being influenced by. And I respect the fact that they've always been so open about being influenced, that they weren't insular and only doing what they wanted, that they were being influenced by what was going on around them. So, yes. <laughs> Rush did a short tour in 1979 before they recorded the album. And on that tour, they played The Spirit of Radio and free will live before they recorded it. The first question is how great would it have been to see Rush perform those songs before you heard them on the record? That's number mm -hmm. one. And secondly, how important was that for them to perform those songs before they recorded them? Now, summer of 79, how awesome would it have been to see them? I didn't see them in the summer of 79, I think because I was either studying for a spelling test or I had a big kickball game in the street. <laughs> So let me be clear. That's why I wasn't there. I had two darn good reasons. Okay. Uh, well, them playing Free Will and the Spirit of Radio live before they made their way onto vinyl, it wasn't unprecedented. They had done it before when they went to the UK for the first time ever in June of 77, and they premiered Xanadu then before it finally made its way onto A Farewell to Kings, of course. So I know their experience having done that was positive. It allowed them to work out a couple of kinks, both musically and lyrically. So that approach, playing a song live, had worked for them before. They had done some of the writing. So let's go out and 
perform some of these songs live in front of an audience to see what's working. Let's get some kind of immediate feedback. What's working? Maybe what's something that still needs to be revisited. And it's something that they continue to do thereafter. It was a practice that was beneficial enough to them or helpful enough to them. They ended up doing it in 1980 when they played Tom Sawyer and Limelight live before it appeared on moving pictures. Subdivisions, the analog kid, Digital Man, those were premiered before Signals, Distant Early Warning, Red Sector A, Kid Gloves before Grace Under Pressure, Big Money, Middletown Dreams before Power Windows. And then it didn't happen again until Caravan and BU to Be on the Time Machine Tour before Clockwork Angels proper live. You mentioned them playing Free Will and the Spirit of Radio live. There are bootleg versions of the band performing Entre New in its entirety at a sound check in the summer of 79. That is exactly as it ended up appearing on, on the record. Wow. Very cool. What about La Studio, Ray? This was the first time Rush recorded at La Studio. Yes. How important was that in the making of this record? My line in my liner notes was just something I just wanted to romantically have it roll off your tongue, you know, La Studio. Just the, the mention of it conjures up a romantic image of Rush circa 1979, 1980, creating these masterpieces that we've all come to know and love, where I think their relationship at Rockfield, where they did the previous two records, the results were spectacular, but the memories surrounding their time there were not. So just to work a little closer to home at a place where others had had success with they were treated so well there that that's part of the story that I'm not sure how well I detailed it in the liner notes, but Terry Brown really went out of his way to let me know how comfortable they were at the studio, how comfortable they were made to feel at the studio by, by the owners and by the entire staff at, at the studio. So it was a place that they were allowed to feel so relaxed and comfortable and what comes from that? Only greater quality and productivity, not only musically, but with the two of you gentlemen, with myself, with anybody at their workplace. Isn't that normally the case that if you feel supported and comfortable and at home and at ease, aren't you going to be that much more productive and produce a better quality work? And that's what ended up happening at the studio. So, you know, these songs you mentioned in the, in the liner notes, Actually, I'm going to quote you to you, if that's all right. Go ahead. So when you're talking um, about the spirit of radio, you say there may be no song or lyric better suited to lead off an album from any band or artist in the history of recorded music. I agree with you, first of all. Good. Now, now it, it should be noted as well. I did major in hyperbole in, in college <laughs> as well. So that was an opportunity there for me to exercise my hyperbolic self. Well, I, I agree with you. I don't think it's hyperbolic at all. As Steve and I were talking about it. The side one of Permanent Waves is one of the greatest sides in all of rock music. So my question to you... It's flawless. Side one is definitively flawless. I, I apologize. Well, let's talk about that song, The Spirit of Radio. We were talking about all of the uh, different musical influences at the time, and they consciously decide that they're going to write their version, I suppose, of a, a more popular song. And then that this is what they come up with. What do you think they wanted to accomplish with the Spirit of Radio? 
maybe they wanted to have a song that embodies this progression. And if you put side one of Hemispheres from the year before next to the Spirit of Radio after it, it's an incredible exhibition in progression. So right there, they've gone from here's a lead track on this album that is the entire side of the album and is in excess of 18 minutes to here's this song that maintains a lot of what we are as a band, but in a condensed version that we can play a song that is as effective as a song that's 12 minutes, but we can do it in we can do it in five minutes. So what they wanted to do was to still maintain the sensibilities of who they were as musicians but somehow have it a little more self-contained into a more, I don't want to say radio-friendly time limit, but in a, in a time frame that still maintains their sensibilities, but still represents who they are. And who they are is so well represented in, in that song. Can I continue to wax poetic about the spirit? Absol- of radio? Absolutely. Okay. You mentioned my quote there that there may be no song that is better suited to lead off an album in the history of recorded music. But I also came to the conclusion that in my opinion, the Spirit of Radio is it's the single most important song that they've ever written. Now, maybe Tom Sawyer is more popular. Certainly, I've had a friend argue that Working Man was more important than the Spirit of Radio because all of a sudden they were discovered, let's say, with Working Man. But the Spirit of Radio opened the band up to such an incredibly wider and more diverse audience than what they had prior. And somehow within that five minute time frame, they do represent what makes that band as credible as they are. So I know that I have a little bit in there about how that song represents the cores of their credibility. And that's something that I was at this professional workshop within the last year. Somehow the presenter shared a little something that it struck me. He was talking about the cores of one's credibility and those cores being one's intent, one's capability, one's integrity, and ultimately the results. And I wasn't sure why I was being moved by what this gentleman was telling me at this workshop, but nonetheless, I I jotted those down. Intent, capability, results, integrity. Now, this workshop that I was at, just so happened to have been presented at the same time that I had just begun writing the liner notes. So I knew there was something about these four cores of credibility that spoke to me more than professionally. It spoke to me as it relates to the band, as it relates to Rush and the work I was doing writing these liner notes. So to me, I think the Spear of Radio perfectly represents all of those. It represents their capabilities as, as musicians. It's represented in the in the result, just quantitatively, how well the record sold, how popular the song is. It was their intent to try to create music that was as adventurous and as progressive as the long songs were, but condensed into a shorter time frame. And the lyrics mention their integrity. Integrity is mentioned two or three, one or two other times within the record. Put all those cores of credibility together, the popularity of the song itself, how much it moves people then and 40 years later it is the most important it's a fact it was recently voted the most important song that they've ever done in their life a hundred percent of people polled said it was the most important song and again it should be noted i was the only one being- <laughs> now what about the spirit of radio live ray it was a mainstay in rush's set from 1980 right till the end what is it about the song 
that the fans connected with at the show? Why was it so powerful at a Rush show to see them perform the Spirit of Radio Live? I'll go back to my comment before and just say, first of all, dude, because it's awesome. <laughs> uh, and there are a couple of parts during the song in which there is some sort of feigned attempt for the crowd to join along that I always find it kind of cheesy when there's some singer or some musician on stage saying, you know, come on, Buffalo, put your hands in the air. Well, if, if I'm moved, I'm going to put my hands in the air. If you're encouraging me, there's something false about that, that I'm, I'm not buying it. So as Getty is singing, invisible air is crackle with life. And first he's clapping his hands and then he's doing that, that hand gesture. All right. There's something about that, that he's not wanting us to do it. He's doing it, but somehow people are, wanting to join in and then of course at the end when there's the you know concert hall and the crowd always inevitably cheers for that but there's so much about the importance of that song that it is still a song you hear on classic rock radio it's the familiarity of it it's everything about the song that i just detailed moments ago that that's why it was a mainstay in their set although i will say with all due respect it was not played at every single show when the band opened up the presto tour in February of 1990, February 17th of 1990 in Greenville, South Carolina. That's my ridiculous OCD-ness. I was just going to say, are you sure that that's the date? I don't think I ever. <laughs> and the Spirit Radio was was not played. They didn't play it at the opening show. They didn't play it for a couple of shows. And then they the, it was the big money that opened up the encore on the Presto Tour. And for them not to play the Spirit of Radio was, that was newsworthy. Well, they ultimately ended up rotating the big money in the spirit of radio as the opening song for a couple shows there until the big money was retired and the spirit of radio then became the proper encore opening song in the Presto tour. I remember asking Alex about that in March 8th of 1990 in Detroit about that decision. Okay. I've embarrassed myself enough with the uh, dates. (laughs) No, go ahead. Keep going. I like them. Sorry, I'm not sure if I even answered your question there. Why don't you talk a little bit about David Mardson, the PD of uh, CFNY? The song was written for this radio station in Toronto, correct? Yes. Okay. Most importantly, I'll try to be serious here for the next three minutes, starting now. So, Steve, number one, thanks for asking about David Mardson. I really do appreciate you asking about him. There, there were a few things that I really wanted to accomplish in writing these liner notes here. And certainly one goal that I had with regard to the piece that I ended up writing is I wanted to bring as much attention and celebration to David Marsden as I possibly could in writing this piece. I'm saying this with all due respect to Donna Helper. Donna Helper played an incredible role in the early stages of the band. She's been a somebody who has supported the band from day one up until probably still right now. And she should be recognized and celebrated for the importance that she played in the band's career. But I think David Marsden's name is one that should be celebrated just as much as Donna Halper. So I was incredibly honored and proud to talk to him and to understand his role at CFNY, his relationship with the band, his relationship with Ray Daniels. And to be able to tell his story in these liner notes is something that I hope a lot of fans pay careful attention to and really appreciate himself and his name. And I hope the spotlight 
shines brightly upon him a little bit once Permanent Waves is celebrated with its anniversary. Yeah, we learned in the, in the liner notes, the band held him in such regard that Neil himself deli- hand-delivered Permanent Waves to the radio station. Yes, holy cow, was that just, I hope it was chilling for you to read. It was. Yes, it was so chilling to me when it was told, when that story was told to me. David Marsden himself, I found him to be so incredibly noble that he didn't want any kind of attention or celebration, or he didn't have a chip on his shoulder about the fact that he hadn't been recognized and celebrated like Donna Helper. I'm, that's just in my own words. I found David Marsden to be so incredibly noble in the story that he told me. But it was Ivar Hamilton who worked at CFNY with David for a while. I talked to Ivar as well in preparing my liner notes and appreciated Ivar's friendship and insight. And the story he told me of the band being so appreciative CFNY, while the band was recording the record, they would finish their work at the studio, hop in their respective vehicles. What would they tune into? They'd tune into CFNY. So unbeknownst to David Marsden, who was the program director at CFNY there at the time, unbeknownst to him, his work was influencing the band. They were listening to CFNY, and they were so appreciative of what CFNY was doing for them as a band that they were influencing them. They wanted to show their thanks. So how did they show their thanks? They dedicated this song to him. Although, interestingly enough, it doesn't say specifically CFNY 102.1 in the liner notes of the original album. But then for Neil himself to be the one to deliver the album to CFNY and hand it to Ivar Hamilton, Ivar's recollection of it, as I told in the liner notes there, he said it's the biggest highlight of his career, the most memorable moment of his career, never before or since has a band of that stature done anything like that for, for him or for the station. Can you believe that? Neil knocking on the door. Hi, guys. Thanks so much. Here's our new album. This is de- this. Oh, yeah. He said, this one's for you. This is dedicated to you. Oh, chilling. Yeah. And then a great Easter egg that you learned about is that they did give a nod to the radio station when they the numbers 102.1 were etched into the vinyl next to the sticker. That's just even better. Something specifically that David Murray and went out of his way to make sure he shared with me. He was really enthusiastic about, do you know that in the original pressing of the record, if you look at the grooves close to the sticker, you'll see 1021. So our, our radio station was represented in that way. And he really wanted to make sure that I knew that. Again, I can't speak highly enough about him and the nobility of his character. And I do hope, I do hope enough people buy the deluxe edition of this release because if i'm not mistaken my liner notes are appearing only in the deluxe edition i hope people buy the deluxe edition so that they could read this story about david marsden and ivar hamilton specifically within the liner notes yeah i i I love the liner notes i'm a i'm a liner notes guy anyway elvis costello had done uh like Ryko disc reissues and he wrote liner notes for all of his albums i could read those all day i was incredibly just honored to have been given this opportunity to write the liner notes. The gentleman who wrote the liner notes for the last three releases, the last three anniversary releases, Rob Bowman is a Grammy award winner. I mean, not only is he a Grammy award winner, he's a Grammy award winner for writing liner notes. 
He's a Grammy Award winner, a university professor of music. So the fact that I was asked to write these liner notes, I was incredibly honored and I wanted to do a good job. I wanted to represent myself well. I wanted to show my thanks to those who put their faith in me to give me this opportunity. I wanted to represent them well. I want to represent the album well. I want to represent the band well. I want to represent all the Rush fans well. So I appreciated and I was honored by being asked. Well, I'm incredibly indebted, super indebted to Andy Curran for his belief in me. I'm incredibly indebted and thankful to Peggy Ciccone for believing in me and putting her trust in me to represent the band in this work. I'm so incredibly thankful to Ivar Hamilton, who championed my name as well and having me be the one to be chosen to do this. And I'm super thankful that Jeff Fira, not only for his belief in me and picking me as being a worthy candidate to represent this this work in the band, but for his help all along throughout the process of writing my piece. So I'm thankful all four of them, to Andy, to Peggy, to Ivar, and to Jeff for believing in me and just for their help and support along the way. I wanted to do them justice. I wanted to represent myself well, but I also wanted to represent those who believed in me well and know that their belief in me and their choice in me was... Uh, was the right one. So I'm super thankful to those four people for sure. Well, you did a fabulous job, Ray. You achieved all of your goals with these liner notes. Thank you. So let's circle back a little bit. How were you approached to write the liner notes? At gunpoint. <laughs> <laughs> is, that a, is that a usual occurrence for you? You're approached by gunpoint a lot? Uh, a simple phone call. And I tried to maintain some sense of professionalism and cool. And then, of course, I hung up the phone and danced a little jig around here. It was, yeah, it was, it was a, a phone call that I was just so incredibly honored to have received. Well, back to Permanent Waves, Ray. You mentioned how Rush was trying to boil down their complex songs into five-minute pieces. And with the next song on Permanent Waves, Free Will, mm -hmm. they do just that. And the mm -hmm. thing that Jerry and I are amazed by with this song, and we mentioned it on a previous podcast, is the solo section of Free Will. Yes. Where yes. Getty, Alex, and Neil are all soloing at the same time. It's uh -huh. just incredible. Yes. N never done before, as far as I can tell, mm -hmm. in any song. Thoughts on that? Oh, I feel like I wrote so passionately about Free Will within the liner notes. That specific movement, Steve, that you mentioned there, the specific movement of the three of them soloing together Coming out of that band solo section, just prior to each of us, a cell of awareness, as they come down out of the band solo section, that part of that song was received with greater enthusiasm than any other Rush song performed live. I've seen them, I sent you both my ridiculous list, I've seen them 113 times, so I've seen Tom Sawyer, 113 times. And <laughs> Tom Sawyer gets an incredible reaction every time it begins. Every time the overture to 2112 begins, it's received with incredible enthusiasm. But the reaction that that specific part of Free Will received supersedes the enthusiasm of both Tom Sawyer and the overture to 2112. Steve, I agree, Steve, I agree with you wholeheartedly. It is just musicianship at its highest level being recognized by their fans and being celebrated just boisterously and enthusiastically. Oh, that part of that song is frigging awesome. 
<laughs> yeah, and everybody in the crowd, whether or not they can say it, they definitely feel it. That's that's the thing about Rush, as we were talking about before. There's a great feeling about a lot of their songs, but that moment, what is it, three seconds, five seconds, it packs in the emotions mm-hmm. like no other song. Yeah. I mentioned before something about Getty's quote of if we can somehow do the same thing in five minutes that we would do in, in 20 minutes, well, free will is the best representation of that mindset. Absolutely. And what about the message behind free will, Ray? Neil's lyrics. Uh, I know that the both of you spoke to Mark Irwin, who has become just a, a good friend and a, and, a, and a great guy. I know he speaks so passionately about that song lyrically that I think a lot of people speak with great passion about what that song means to them lyrically. You know, it's, I've got X number of books here behind me. Here's this guy dissecting free will. And here's this author dissecting free will. And here's this author dissecting his approach to free will. Everybody has their different interpretations of what that song means to them lyrically. It's to me, it's just yet another one in a long line of Neil's literary, a Neil Peart literary showcase. Yeah, you know, when I was, we've mentioned this a couple of times, but when we first became fans and then kind of, you know, took the deep dive into all of their, you know, into the Rush catalog, there was something about a rock song about free will (laughs) that was like, this band, there is something different about this band. If they're writing this song about free will and determinism and religion, I was like, this is, this is a crazy band. A planet of playthings, we dance on the strings. Who who else is giving you right. that sort of literary muscle flexing outside of Neil Peart? Nobody. Planet of playthings, we dance on the strings of powers we cannot perceive. Oh, <laughs> and you can still sing along to it somehow. Right. And you mentioned in the liner notes, Ray, uh, Neil said he doesn't believe in supreme beings. He didn't believe anyone was running his life except him. How would you describe Neil's religious beliefs? Oh, I, I, I would be 3 billion percent pretentious if I answered that with any kind of conviction. <laughs> I, I will step away from giving my <laughs> analysis of his religious <laughs> beliefs. Why? Why? Anything Neil has put on record himself as the official answer to that question. Yeah, I guess, you know, there's a quote from Elvis Costello where somebody asked him what a song meant. And his response was, uh, well, if I could explain it a different way, I would have written a different song. (laughs) Nice. Nice. I'm also I'm also kind of I want to be respectful of your collective line of questioning with regard to both my interpretation of the lyrics to free will or neil's religious perceptions however you put it i want to be respectful to it i'm not trying to intentionally dodge it but i know at the same time that jacob's ladder is next and i think i have a lot to say about that (laughs) what about the cinematic yeah Uh uh-huh uh-huh jacob's ladder ray talk to us let's talk about that yeah without question that is i i think i heard you jerry in a recent podcast make a casual reference to the you know the inevitability of the camera eye and its cinematic grandeur there is nothing more cinematic than jacob's ladder the picture that they paint with that song just musically is gorgeous it doesn't get more cinematic than that that song that song would have worked perfectly as an instrumental if they didn't decide hey let's put these lyrics on top of this music they had me 
with that song instrumentally. Yeah, I mean, you could get the same feeling that the lyrics kind of bring to the surface, but you can get the same feeling just from the music. It sounds like a thunderstorm. Jerry, is there any greater marriage of music and lyric than that of Jacob's Ladder? Until until we talk about the next song, and I'll probably <laughs> right. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> but, but Jacob's Ladder is such an incredibly perfect marriage of music and lyric, and somehow it was only exponentially magnified when they came to their senses and decided to yeah. present it live yeah. to the crowd again. Finally, years later, in in 2015, I thought Jacob's Ladder was not only a recorded masterpiece that was a perfect marriage of song and live on stage production oh there's nothing more cinematic nothing more cinematic in russia's catalog to me than jacob's ladder but what do they do with the next record well hey let's take this cinematic approach that we somehow successfully found within jacob's ladder now let's try to do a a whole album that is as cinematic and perhaps that's part of the majesty of moving pictures is that they took that cinematic approach across the entire album. And why do you think they left it out of the set list for 35 years, Ray? Why did they not go back to it till 2015? Who knows? As, as their, as their catalog grew longer, you know, they had to make this, those difficult decisions and they got to be creatures of habit for quite a while with regard to their set lists. I don't know. Maybe aren't, aren't there also songs, not necessarily rush songs, but aren't there songs by other bands and artists uh, that you have kind of decided, Oh, I don't think I like that song. It's, so you, you haven't listened to it for 10 years. You haven't listened to it for 15 years or 20 years. And then for whatever reason, you, you pull it off your shelf, you listen to it, and you realize, you know what? It's not as bad as I thought it was. I mean, they're, they're music fans as well. Maybe it's something as simple as that. They didn't have a good memory of anything about the song. So once it sat on the shelf, they kind of forgot about it, like we as music fans do. For some reason, they pulled it off the shelf and decided to revisit it. And maybe it was as simple as that. Hey, it's not as bad as I thought it was. Let's give it a shot. Maybe they heard it on the radio. The spirit of radio moved them. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Side one of Permanent Waves, it's flawless. I, I heard your claim there, Jerry, that the opening duo of the Spirit of Radio and Free Will might be their, or I think your claim was that it is their best opening one-two punch on any album. But isn't that, isn't that part of the fun as music fans is you're saying that just as a claim? Well, what, what is that? It's really just an invitation to have a conversation. How do you start yeah. the conversation? Spirit of Radio and Free Will are the two best. <laughs> yeah. You know, discuss. Okay, there. You've opened up a conversation. And inevitably, what do conversations like that do? What does a conversation like this do? I've learned conversations are just meant to help deepen the understanding. That's why you have a conversation to help you deepen the understanding. That's some real wisdom in there. You deepened my understanding, Ray, of Entree New. I had no idea that Entree New was written in the form of a letter. Yeah. Explain, explain that to us. I, I had no idea. It's amazing. Just, just amazing that you pointed that out and it's just obvious now. Okay. I'll explain it to you. It was written in the form of a letter. <laughs> <laughs> Not only does it, does it kind of read that way? You know, it's, isn't it so hard at, at this point in our respective careers as Rush fans to pick up a lyric and read the lyric and, and somehow divorce yourself from the music that is associated with that lyric. You can't do that. You can take a song by some other band that you're not familiar with and just read the lyric. But if anybody can somehow do that, take the lyrics to Entrenew, divorce yourself from the music and just read it. It is intended that way. And I know I found a quote from 
Neil from one of the sources here that surround me in which he admitted it was intended just as a letter. But what moved me about about that song upon my, I don't want to say my revisiting entrepreneur, that makes it sound like it was something from my past. Entrepreneur is a part of my past, my present, and future. But in my detailed study of that song, when I arrived at the symbiosis between entrepreneur and different strings, side by side, that that really struck a nerve with me. Steve, just like you're saying, there was something about the revelation of entrepreneur being a letter. To me, the symbiosis of the of entrepreneur and the song that follows it on the record, different strings. That that moved me as well. That I love that. I love that. That all these years later, thirty nine years since this band came and altered the orbit of my life. I love that I'm still not only learning about them, but there's no end to the learning. And I, I love that point of arrival that moved me. Now, also, Entree New was a song that did not play on the Permanent Waves tour. They didn't play it until, what, 2007, Snakes and Arrows? Correct. Opening date in Atlanta in June of 2007. Who saw that one coming? None of us yeah. did. That's what I was going to ask you. How did you feel when you heard them play that for the first time when you saw them on that tour? Yeah, absolutely. I think I saw them once on that tour. Well, I saw them once on that day. And then once the next day, and what a, what a fantastic, fantastic set list. Entrenu fit within that set list somehow because that was a set list where they completely changed the approach that they had. It wasn't, let's take previous year's set list, highlight and delete a couple, insert a few more, and let's continue thereafter. It was a completely different set list. And playing Entrenu so early in the set there, that spoke volumes about how they were feeling going forward, including that song in the set. Oh, that was such a, an incredibly great and pleasant surprise back in 2007. Yeah, Steve and I were talking about uh, how they included it. And for me, I kind of feel like that was a gift to us fans. You know, it's, 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 as far as I'm concerned, it's a deep cut. It's a rush deep cut. And they did it because they know that we wanted to hear it. Mm-hmm. Although, uh, Okay, rush deep cut. Are there, really, are there really anything is rush deep cuts? Well, not to us, not to us, but to some people. So going from Entree New Ray to different strings, you compared the lyrics that Neil wrote for Entree New to the lyrics that Getty wrote for different strings, and I think the parallel you made is is amazing. What do you think of how Getty's lyric writing progressed from the first album to here, and how how did Neil influence him? Do you think? Well, I, I get it. I get Getty not writing. I get him not being that prolific of a lyricist. I mean, if you're in a band with maybe the greatest lyricist ever, it's like if you're playing on the same team with Michael Jordan, come on, didn't we all just watch all 10 episodes of The Last Dance? <laughs> I get it. I get it if you're not getting a lot of shots off if you play with the Bulls, because holy cow, you play with Michael Jordan for crying out loud. So if you got Michael Jordan, give him the ball. Let him do what he does best and help us win. If you're in a band with the greatest lyricist of all time, great. Go ahead and write the lyrics. I'm there's there's no defeat or no backing down. I think it's more just deferring to Neil's expertise. But, you know, Ged did it on occasion. We saw the success with which he ended up having writing an entire album's worth of lyrics in 2000 with my my favorite headache. But I just found it incredible that the lyrics that he did write and have represented on permanent waves 
we're that parallel uh, in mindset to what Neil presented with Entrepreneur. And I'm not sure it's anything I ever really realized until I did the work of sat down and I really did put them side by side, the respective stanzas side by side in front of me. But maybe just the the longevity of the relationship. Now, at that point, it was only six years or five and a half years that they were together. Whether he influenced him as as a lyricist or just with his willingness to give the lyrics a try, knowing that he would only be supportive, that the three of them were only supportive of each other, both lyrically and musically. So I, I respect the fact that Neil, as gifted as a writer as he was, wasn't selfish about it. And if Getty had something to present, great. And the fact that they ended up being so parallel to what Neil was presenting in Entrenu, uh it's just fascinating. So I guess the only thing left to talk about now is natural science. Now that song, I don't know. I'm not familiar with that one. I've never. <laughs> <laughs> it's too deep of a cut, even for you. <laughs> yes. But Steve, so when Steve and I were talking about um, natural science, we just came to the conclusion that it is probably the nuttiest, craziest, out of this world song that Rush has ever done. And they've done a couple of really nutty songs, but there's something about natural science that takes it to the next level. It does take it to the next level as, as, as a fan as well. Have you ever yeah. been involved in those kind of conversations where you know, you'll start it off with, you know, dude, isn't Red Barchetta awesome? Dude, don't you love, you know, don't you love the trees? Yeah. But then inevitably somebody feels like they're kind of one up in you and they say, dude, what about natural science? Exactly. <laughs> like, oh yeah. Sorry. What I love about the song is that for me, it it seems like it tells the story of the human race because at the beginning of the song, you know, it's like a civilization that's just getting started and they, they go into hyperspace and then it's a mechanized world out of hand. And in the third stanza kind of tries to position something in between both of those things where, you know, science like nature must also be tamed. So they don't get, you know, that we can have a nearly perfect society if we can decide to just contain some aspects of society. Agree? Disagree? Well, I think the key is the addendum to the science like nature line. Science like nature must also be tamed. But I think the next line is key there with a view towards its preservation. I think that's key. And with regard to your reference to the line of a mechanized world out of hand, the fact that Ged can sing a line like that, a mechanized world out of hand, shows the incredible relationship I think that Getty as singer has with Neil as lyricist, with Alex as co-songwriter, that somehow he could sing a line like mechanized world out of hand without it sounding clumsy or cumbersome. Later on in the career, when Ged would sing a line like, uh, in cold fire, a phosphorescent wave on a tropical sea is a cold fire. What sort of of rock band is presenting you with those kind of lyrics? But what kind of singer and lyricist had that kind of relationship where you can present a line like phosphorescent wave on a tropical sea, or in your case there, Jerry, a mechanized world out of hand? can present that and you can somehow sing along to it that it doesn't sound cumbersome to sing along to. I was fascinated by, you know, years ago when Rush entered my radar and as I said before, altered the orbit of my life, there was that mystical 
knowledge or the mystical discovery of this song called Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. So part of my work, I'm saying, I'm sharing this with both of you as it relates to natural science. Part of my work for these liner notes was trying to discover anything and everything I could about this unknown, this singular unknown song in the Rush canon, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And it wasn't too, it was sometime last summer where I was first sent or first discovered, I'll say, a copy of the lyrics to Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And 38 years after becoming a fan in late 1981, to finally have these lyrics to Sir Gawain and the Green Knight in front of me, that was chilling. But clearly, as I read it, it wouldn't have fit within the context of anything in permanent waves lyrically. I know they ended up kind of pillaging and plundering a little bit from what that song was musically to eventually bore natural science. So I know that natural science has a little bit of its foot in the past with the creation of Sir Gawain, but uh, I've read some people online saying, you know, how come they don't have Sir Gawain on here on this deluxe box set? They should. Well, people, it doesn't exist. That's why. Yeah. Uh, Ray, do you think that there are other lyrics for other songs that Neil wrote that are packed away in a notebook somewhere that we'll eventually possibly see or no? Not proper lyrics. Their their belief all along has been if we're going to spend this amount of time working on a song lyrically or musically, it's it's going to go on the album. Of course, he's well known for having all of these notebooks with all these notes that he would end up revisiting and then somehow finding some sort of common theme or ideas that he had originally jotted down that he wanted to revisit. Will there be lyrics from the past? I think, I doubt it. It would only be excerpts from his notebook that were probably just not intended to be, not intended to be shared. Boom, boom, ba boom, boom. So that's a no. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were having a great talk with Randy Wozniak. So he brought us all down. Yes. He shut us down. There is one part in the liner notes, you described that Permanent Waves is a career-defining album. And I think we've discussed why it is. How do you think that the making of Permanent Waves set them on a different kind of course for the rest of their albums? Not doing, you know, the epics again until, you know, Clockwork Angels. What was it about that demarcation that set them on the path that they went? I think it was a point of demarcation for their confidence. They knew they could make Hemispheres Part 2. They knew they could make 2112 Part 2. They knew they could make another album like they had done in the previous three and be successful with it. That's who they were, and they could have done another one and still have been just as successful. But having the success that they did with Permanent Waves, I think only... Uh, serve to fuel their confidence that they should follow their gut and do the music that they wanted to, that it would be representative of progressing and making progressive rock music, even if it wasn't that much similar to the records they had done before. I think it only served to fuel their confidence for the records that they wanted to make going forward. And think, think about bands who have done that before and the success that they've had and how important it was. Look at a band like like Fleetwood Mac with Rumors, one of the greatest selling albums of all time. They could have easily come back the next record and done Rumors Part 2, but they didn't. They followed up with Tusk, which in no way is any can in any way be related to Rumors other than the fact it's the same five people making the record. But being that experimental for Fleetwood Mac with Tusk gave them 
the confidence going forward. Similarly, with Russian permanent waves, I think it only served to fuel their confidence for the next 35 years to come. What would you say is permanent waves legacy now, 40 years later, Ray? How important is it in the history of rock music? Well, it contains the song with the single best lyric to open an album in the history of all time. So, so it's got to be it's got to be known for that. I read it on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> what is its legacy? It it only serves to reinforce the integrity that the band represents and the barometer that they set for themselves in producing quality work will be celebrated. I find it incredible that 40 years later, their work is still to be celebrated. And I'm glad that this record is being given this deluxe anniversary re-release because it deserves to be celebrated. I think sometimes it kind of sits a little bit in the shadow of its big brother moving pictures that maybe at times permanent ways feels almost a little inferior to its big brother. So I'm glad that this record is being given the celebration and the attention that it deserves because it was so important for the band to continue making the music they eventually created for the next 35 years, that it was a point of demarcation for their, their confidence. It established who they were going forward while still recognizing who they had been, represented their integrity, cinematic songs. Is it, is it a masterpiece? I, I, I believe every, every band or art, any artist has an album that is a, a masterpiece. Can you, can you identify Permanent Waves as a masterpiece? I would say it's, it's one of many Rush masterpieces. Yeah, but then they, they followed it up with Moving Pictures, which is also a masterpiece, right? I asked the question, is it a masterpiece? I, I sh- maybe should have said there, there is a correct answer to that question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let me guess. It's yours. <laughs> ironically the answer is good god yes it's a it's a masterpiece it is it's a flawless album there there yes. are there, there are no flaws to the aesthetics of the record how how it's presented visually the 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 title itself the artwork that adorns the cover even the fact that it is packed with six songs and i like the fact that there's six songs you know a, a friend of mine shared the theory a couple of years ago brian my friend brian advanced the theory a couple of years ago that in 1985 ish 86 ish when cds became the popular format it had an effect on the quality of music the bands were creating because now all of a sudden bands didn't have a vinyl 42 minute time limit they had this compact disc 79 minute time limit with the, with the idea that my friend shared with me that just because you have 79 minutes at your disposal doesn't mean you have to make 79 minutes worth of music. That Rush in 1979 had 42 minutes at their disposal, and they packed in that 42 minutes six flawless songs that flow perfectly. Even the, the sequencing of the record I find to be perfect. There There are no flaws because it is a flawless album it is therefore a masterpiece you know you also brought up in the in the um liner notes how the the name of the album permanent waves is is it a, is a statement in itself you know their kind of music is a is a permanent you know like they're not going anywhere they're they're transitioning to maybe a different type of music but they are here to stay well spoken 
and and I, I should have just and I'll add on to that just to say a sincere thank you. You you began that point by saying, "Hey Ray, in your liner notes," uh, and I'm only being serious here and saying, "Well, that means you you must have read those." And I know that they are obnoxiously long, so I really am thanking the both of you just for taking the time to read them. Really, do you want to see my notes as I write? I was writing in them as I was reading. <laughs> Only the parts that, that that have a little arrow that say awesome. Oh, you know, we also didn't talk about is what's in the deluxe edition of the, the 40th anniversary. Can you tell us? Well, in, in addition to the record itself, I think the highlight for most fans is going to be the single disc of 79 minutes of live music that has been chosen to represent the band on tour in support of Permanent Waves totally remastered by Terry Brown. He got his hands on all of this. He performed his magic with these songs, and it sounds spectacular. A Passage to Bangkok is not included in the, on the CD because if they included A Passage to Bangkok, that would have exceeded the allotment on a CD. That's why that song is being made available as a digital download as well. There's a excellent Le Studio notepad the Words in the Pictures Volume 2 is a part of the set. The Words in the Pictures Volume 1 was available with the Hemisphere's Deluxe release. There's a new poster, uh, I think, created by Patrick McLaughlin with Showtech. That's a beautiful two-sided poster. There's a lot of goodies in there that I think certainly you get your value for money, for sure, in purchasing this deluxe box set the quality of the release is representative of the quality of the music the quality and the standards that the band always set for themselves well ray this has been great thanks so much for joining us on the rush Fancast. we got we have to have you back now to talk about your collection we didn't even talk about your collection i appreciate my time with the both of you i respect the, the work that the two of you are doing i hope you're getting good reviews and that you are being appreciated for the work that you've done and all that good stuff thank you ray Thanks. So, Jer, that was an incredible, incredible conversation with Ray. It was. You know, it was great talking to him again because the, the day that we met him at the, the book signing or the, the book launch party, we went out to a bar afterwards. And I think I must have talked to him for two hours about music. And it was, he's such an interesting guy. And, you know, he has interesting opinions on just about everything. It was a great conversation. And now we had another great conversation. And he knows more about Rush than I think anyone that we've spoken to so far. He knows more about Rush than I know about members of my own family. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> and, and as you said, just a great guy. And uh, I, I'm serious. I definitely want to have him back because his collection is amazing. And we didn't even yeah. touch on that. Nope. I mean, he has things that you would not even believe if you see the video on Time Stand Still. Yeah, You see some of it, but he's got everything. He sent us the list and it's incredible. It is. It's not like, uh, it's not just bobbleheads and, uh, stickers and patches. It's, it's everything. It's deep. It's everything. It's amazing. Yep. Anyway, Ray, thanks so much for joining us. That was, that was terrific. It was. Thanks. And we have an announcement, Jer. We do. I know. On Twitter, we reached 2112 followers. That's right. How amazing is that? That's incredible. It is incredible. On our first episode, I said we had 10 followers. 10. 10. And now we have 2112 and then some. 
Yeah. So 39 episodes later, or I guess 40 episodes later, this, is, this will be the 40th episode. Yeah, the 40th episode. It's, it's incredible. And our good friend Andy Courtright, who's been listening since the beginning, was nice enough to send us a copy of Getty Lee's Big Beautiful Book of Bass to give away on the podcast. Yeah. That was really nice of him. It was so nice of him. We had, I, I couldn't thank him enough, and he sent it over. It came the other day. It is, a, as we all know, a big, beautiful book of bass. It is incredible, and I <laughs> yeah. would guess most Rush fans probably have it, but if you already have it, you can still win it and maybe give it to a friend as a gift. Sure. That'd be, that'd be a great gift. It would. So, so to celebrate our 2112 Twitter followers, we're going to give this book away. And the way to enter is to email you at the rushcast at gmail.com and join the email list. If you're on the email list already, you're already entered. And if you're not shoot Jerry an email, add me to the list and you'll be automatically entered. Yep. That's all you have to do. And we're going to allow people to add themselves to the list until Thursday, June 4th at five o'clock. And then we'll draw a winner when we record the episode that day. That's uh, Eastern time, Eastern time. And then on Monday, June 8th, we'll announce the winner. Yeah. Simple as that. Very exciting. This is the first time we've, we've done something like this. Yeah. And thanks to Andy, because we can't afford to buy a book to give away. <laughs> we know that. We have microphones to buy. <laughs> <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at rush Fancast, Instagram, the rush cast, the email, as I said, the rushcast at gmail.com. Join the email list. You'll be entered in our contest to win the book. And Jer, I hope you're ready. Oh, I have, I have to have a quote. At the end of every episode, <laughs> especially the 40th episode, you have es to have a quote. Especially this one. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. I was, uh, I was obviously unprepared as usual. As usual. I think out of I the 40 episodes, you've not had a quote for 35 of them. Well, it's just that you know, we're doing an interview. I'm just not thinking of quotes at the end of the interview. But how about this one? Okay. We are strangers to each other, full of sliding panels and illusion show, acting well-rehearsed routines, or playing from the heart. It's hard for one to know. Indeed. It is. Have a good one. See ya. See ya.